If you were here last week, then you heard Kyle make a compelling case that we should trust the wisdom of Jesus over the wisdom of the world. And the reason why is because Jesus is the only one who has the true path to abundant good and full life. And of course, it begs the question, do we actually do it? Are we actually listening to the wisdom of Jesus or are we trusting in the wisdom of the world? And that's maybe a more complex question than you might think, because throughout church history, Christians have trusted the wisdom of the world time and time and time again. Let me give you some examples. If you went back to the antebellum South, you would have met white Christians who trusted the world's wisdom about race and slavery. If you went back to the early medieval period in Germany, you would have met Christians who trusted the world's wisdom about violence, and they thought it was just to force people to convert to Christianity or be executed. If you went back to the first century, to Corinth, you would meet people who believed the world's wisdom about status and wealth. And so they thought it was right for the wealthy people in the church to drink all the communion wine until they got drunk and left none behind for those who were in poverty. What all of these places share in common isn't just that they trusted the wisdom of the world, it's that they were blind to the fact that they were trusting the wisdom of the world. They couldn't see it in the moment. And this is true of every time, every generation, every place in church history, which means it's true of us right here, right now. And it makes me ask the question, how are we trusting in the wisdom of the world? How are we trusting in ways that we might be blind to, that we just don't ever even think about, we can't even see and this morning I have a proposal for you, which is that the way in which we trust the wisdom of the world that we often don't see is consumerism, is materialism. Let me give you a test. We'll see how we're doing. Um, in the book of Proverbs, there's only one recorded prayer. It's in Proverbs 30. And this is how the book of Proverbs teaches us to pray. In fact, if you know the Lord's Prayer, you'll hear part of it inside of this exact prayer. And so the test for you to see if maybe you've bought into the world's wisdom about consumerism or materialism is really straightforward. Have you ever prayed this prayer before? Yes or no? Here we go. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Okay, maybe we're doing good so far, right? No one wants to be a liar. No one wants to believe in false things. Maybe you've prayed for that. But have you prayed this? Give me neither, <clears throat> give me neither poverty nor riches. You prayed that? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Maybe you've never prayed to be rich, but have you ever actually prayed to God, don't make me rich? Maybe I'm the, not the only one. Okay, uh, but <laughs> give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Does this passage describe you? Uh, to, to explain what it really means, I, I need to explain what this word riches means. Because if you're anything like me, when I hear the word riches, I tend to think about bank accounts, right? Really big bank accounts in particular. But there's one problem. People in the ancient world, well, they didn't have modern banking systems. They did not have bank accounts. That's not how they would have thought about riches. How would they have thought about riches? Well, let's just do a little day in the life of a wealthy Israelite back in the time of Proverbs. This is a drawing of a ancient Israelite homestead, a wealthy homestead. Now, there's one thing wrong. They would typically only have one house, but you know, the internet gives you and it takes away. Um, this is what we have. And so what you see here is uh, what would have been normal, which is that usually three to four generations of a single family would live inside of one of these compounds. That's 10 to 20 people. They would typically have a small herd of animals and also some grain 
being siloed away. Mostly they would own anywhere between 10 to 20 personal affects, two to three changes of clothing. Let's go inside this wealthy person's house. This is a about 1,000 to 1,200 square foot house, so a pretty small or modest sized house in our own day. And the bottom floor, it was entirely dedicated to labor. So there were stables for the animals. This was also where they would make bread, where they would do weaving. And so the bottom floor is actually kind of like a garage. And the, the next floor up, that's where they stored things. And typically they would actually sleep on the roof as long as it wasn't raining outside. So 10 to 20 people living in a house of 1,000 to 1,200 square feet. Now, What made them wealthy? Why were they considered rich? Well, it wasn't because they had a bank account. They didn't have a bank account. Here's what it was. In the ancient world, people went hungry about 60 days a year. That was the norm. If you were wealthy, you were one of those rare people who knew where you were going to get food the next day. In other words, wealth was measured in possessions. It wasn't measured by how much money you had in your bank account. It was measured by how much grain you had in your silo, how many animals you had in your herd, how if you had a house and a place to stay. So by ancient Israelite standards, you were wealthy if you had many possessions. And what does that qualify as? Well, if you have a roof over your head, 10 to 20 personal affects, two to three changes of clothes, and you knew where you were going to get your food the next day, you were wealthy in ancient Israel. You were rich. You had riches, which were material possessions. So that might not be true of everyone in here, but that is true of the majority of people in here. By ancient standards, we aren't just wealthy in possessions. We are extraordinarily, unimaginably, exceptionally wealthy by ancient standards because we have so much stuff. So let's just change Proverbs 37 to 9 with what we've learned. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Now here's the prayer. Have we prayed this prayer? Give me neither poverty nor many possessions, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. If someone followed your life, would they discover that you've trusted the wisdom of the world as it regards materials and possessions or the wisdom of Proverbs. It turns out this isn't the only place in Proverbs that actually challenges our materialism. For example, has there ever been a time in your life where you really wanted something and so you took extra hours at work and you exhausted yourself so that you could get that renovation, get that car, get that piece of clothing, get that gadget and you're exhausting yourself? Well, here's what Proverbs says. Do not wear yourself out to get more stuff. Do we trust that wisdom? Do not trust your own cleverness. Or maybe sometimes you find yourself looking to stuff to make you stand tall, right? Make you feel proud. I'm I'm someone worth paying attention to. I have my life together. I've been successful. If you trust stuff to make you stand tall, well, Proverbs says this. Those who trust in their possessions will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf, or maybe you think, I just want to buy something that's going to be lasting, that, that, that I'll be able to leave a legacy for, something that, that, that will outlast my time and my place. Well, the book of Proverbs warns you and says this, cast but a glance at material possessions and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off into the sky like an eagle. Do you think that buying more stuff is going to make you happier, more fulfilled, have a better life. Jesus says this in Luke 12. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Again, if someone 
followed you around, would they say, oh yeah, there's someone who definitely believes that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I'm not talking to you self-righteously because the truth is if someone followed me around, I don't know that they would draw that conclusion. What would happen? Would you feel afraid if you had to pray prayers like this based on Proverbs 30? Let's just change it to a modern context. We'll go to the next slide. There we go. Uh, Would your happiness diminish if you cut your wardrobe down by half? Do you think that you'd be less happy if your wardrobe was half as big? Just be honest with yourself. You're not telling anyone else. Do, Do you think your happiness would diminish if you lived in a house that was worth half as much? If you drove a car that was worth half as much? If you didn't buy any more clothes or accessories this year? Do you think your happiness would diminish? Just be honest with yourself. Because if I'm being honest with myself, I am so consumed by consumerism that there is a deep part of me that says, I don't want any of those things to happen because I'm pretty sure I would be a lot less happy in my life. And yet Jesus says to me, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That is wisdom. Do I believe his wisdom or do I believe the world's wisdom? Do I look more like him or do I look like the average American? Well, let me just tell you about the average American. The average American will spend 8.5 years of their life shopping. It's a lot of time. And we buy so much stuff. I mean, where are we gonna put it? I've got great news for you. We have 1.7 billion square feet of storage facilities in the US. We buy so much stuff, we can't even fit it in our houses. So we have to go buy storage facilities to store more of our stuff because we really do believe that life, it, 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 it consists in an abundance of possessions. The number one pastime amongst teenage girls today, what have they been trained to do by their parents, by their culture? Well, it's to do online shopping. Let's keep going. 95% of American adults admit that they participate in a form of retail therapy. I don't have this one up here, but the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothes a year. Um, Americans spend more money on shoes, jewelry, and watches than higher education. I mean, he needs to go to college when he got a watch. It's simple, right? Uh, parents, this is, this is the most telling one for me because my guess is if a pollster called you and said, hey, do you think that having more stuff is the key to happiness? You would be a smart person. He said, oh, no, 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 I don't believe anything that absurd. But here's the thing, parents. Parents always want what's best for their children. So you know what a parent really values by seeing what they want for their kids. And what do, what do parents in America want for the kids more than anything else? They want wealth and possession for their children. According to a Wall Street Journal article and study, they want this more than their child to be patriotic, than their child to get married, than their child to have a family. The thing that parents in America care most about is that their child would be wealthy and have lots of possessions. So again, someone follows you around in your life they've got a camera and they can see everything you swipe through, all the online shopping. They can hear your thoughts and all the things that you think about wanting and that you think if I had this, I'd be happier, I'd look better, I'd be this or I'd be that. If they saw all of that, would you look like someone who's following the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of Jesus? Which one is it? Which of these prayers could you pray without fear? Give me neither poverty nor many clothes but only the few changes of clothes I need. Is that a scary prayer? Why? Give me neither poverty nor a giant house, but only a roof over my head. Give me neither poverty nor a nice car, but only the transportation I need. 
But I'm gonna be honest, those are scary prayers. Why? Because there's part of me, if I'm just going to be honest, that thinks life does consist in an abundance of possessions. And again, I am not coming to you self-righteously here. This hit me a few years ago. Um, we were replacing some decades-old uh, uh, flooring in our house, the, the carpet, there's the word for it. And so we pulled up all this carpet, and we got one of those giant uh, dumpsters that you can get from the city, the really long ones, so that we could throw away all that carpet. And so we threw all the carpet into the dumpster, but it wasn't even close to full. And so I thought to myself, well, hey, I'm gonna take advantage of the moment. I'm gonna declutter my house. So over several days, I began to throw away all of the old, worn-out, useless stuff that we couldn't give away. I began to throw it all away into that dumpster and declutter my house until I filled an entire dumpster full of my stuff. And at the end of it, I looked at the dumpster and I felt proud and I thought, oh my gosh, our house is so much cleaner. Our lives are so much simpler. And then it hit me. I had just cleared my house out of old stuff so that I could fill it up with new stuff. That's the only reason I did it. I just wanted to get more stuff. If you had asked me at the time, hey, Patrick, do you trust the wisdom of Jesus or the wisdom of the world? I was so blind to materialism and consumerism. I've been like, oh yeah, oh yeah. But that dumpster was proof that in reality, I believe that life does consist in an abundance of possessions. I have a feeling I'm not the only one. I have a feeling that this might be the single thing that is most consistent across all of us in this congregation and in this country that we have bought into the lies of wisdom. Now, here's the thing. I'm not doing this to make you feel bad. I'm not doing this to make you feel guilty. I feel like a hypocrite saying it because I know it is so deeply rooted in my heart. Here's why I wanna talk about this. It's because materialism has the power to wreck your life. You see, Jesus isn't a killjoy. He, he, he's not just saying, don't do this stuff because I don't want you to do this stuff. Jesus loves you and he wants a full and abundant life for you. But he also understands that you cannot experience the riches of his joy and his mercy while also loving and pursuing stuff more, stuff more. And that's why he calls us to follow his wisdom. In fact, uh, there's three different reasons why Jesus calls us to resist materialism. He calls us to resist materialism because materialism clutters our heart with idols. It clutters our mind with anxiety and envy, and it clutters our relationship with pride. And it's really helpful to look at each one of these things because when you begin to understand them, I think it will make you say, I don't wanna be materialistic anymore. I don't want to have to have stuff to be happy. Let's look at the first one. Materialism clutters your life with idols. Whenever Jesus talked about wealth, many possessions, stuff, he never used the normal word for it. Instead, he always called it mammon. Mammon was, a, was an idol, a foreign god. He was the god of stuff, the god of possessions. And Jesus warned constantly, consistently about mammon. Let's look at one example here. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He means possessions. He means wealth. Jesus is crystal clear here. You get to choose. Will you worship God or will you worship mammon? Will you use your money? Will you use your time? Will you use your energy to serve God or to serve mammon? And the reason why he calls us to serve God is because all mammon does is take and take and take. If you choose to serve mammon, mammon will take your time. It'll take your time on your phone. It'll take your mind space in your head. It will take and will only leave you exhausted. It'll never fill you up. If you serve mammon, it'll promise you status and prestige and a happy life. 
But as soon as you buy the thing, maybe it's a second later, maybe it's a minute, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, but at some point that thing does not satisfy. You're like, why did I even get this thing? And instead of thinking, gosh, I think I need less stuff, what do we do? We think I need something bigger, I need something better. Mammon never satisfies. It's not just that, mammon steals your attention and devotion from Jesus. Steals your attention, your devotion from Jesus. I, I mean, I can't be the only one who's done this. When you're sitting down to have a quiet time and read your Bible, your Bible's sitting on your lap and then you think of something and so you pull out your phone and all of a sudden you're like scrolling on Amazon or Crew or wherever it is that you like to shop from and you spend your entire quiet time online shopping. You have the words of life on your lap and we are locked in because this stuff is the real deal that can make me happy. You cannot serve both God and mammon And Jesus knows that he has real life. That's fake life. It's a lie, it's a mirage, it turns to dust. The second reason why Jesus wants us to follow his wisdom is that materialism clutters your heart with anxiety and envy. Clutters your heart with anxiety and envy. I mean, just ask yourself, how much time do you spend every day worrying about what you're going to wear? Worrying about how you'll look? Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or catch this, about your body, what you will wear. How many Christians are following that particular command? Because that's really hard. Not worry about what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? You see, Jesus understood this strange but true reality that anxiety and stuff have a correspondence The more stuff you have, the more anxious you get. The more clothes you have, the more you worry about clothes. The more gadgets you have, the more you worry about gadgets. The more home renovations you have, the more home renovations you want. The more we have, the more our anxiety over getting those things levels up and increases and takes up space in our minds and in our hearts. But it's not just that, because if you care about those things, what I wear, what I drive, where I live, if you care about those things, if you're fixated on them, then you start to notice them in other people. they're wearing, what they're driving, what their house looks like. And all of a sudden you find that envy coming up in your heart where you start wanting what they have. You start being bitter at them because they have it and you don't have it. And you start becoming anxious because you want to get the thing that they have. So do I need to change my job? Do I need to work more hours? What do I need to do so that I can have all the things that they have? Jesus understands that materialism is not the path to life. It's the path to anxiety and envy. It's a path to death. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Having more will not make you happier. The third reason why Jesus cares about materialism is that materialism clutters your relationships with pride. I don't know, in that verse, that prayer where he says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. He tells us why he's praying this prayer in the next verse. Let's, let's look at it. This is why he prays the prayer. Otherwise, if, I, if, you, if you don't give me poverty nor riches, otherwise... I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? What's he getting at here? Well, again, there's this strange thing that happens. The more stuff you get, the more self-sufficient you feel. And the more self-sufficient you feel, the less you think you need God. If you know where you're gonna get your food every night, you stop relying on God to give you your food. If you know where you're going to sleep every night, you stop relying on God to give you a roof over your head. The more stuff you have, the more self-sufficient you feel. The more you feel like, gosh, I've made it, I've done it, I've made a good life for myself. Look, I can do it all. Who needs God? That is pride. And the more stuff you have, the wise man says, the more likely you are to live inside of that pride 
And of course, we all have a lot of stuff. And so that's a huge temptation for every single one of us. But it's not just pride in our relationship with God. It's pride in our relationship with other people. You see, if you're really attuned, for example, to, to what you wear, when you see people, whether it's conscious or subconscious, you will immediately start uh, scanning them, right? For what brands they're wearing, whether it's Walmart or Target or Lululemon or Gucci, I don't care. You're figuring out, right? And what are you doing with that signal? Well, you're trying to gather information about them. Maybe it's their wealth. Maybe it's their social status. Maybe it's their prestige. Whatever it is, you're trying to figure it out. Why? Well, because if I have nicer stuff than them, then I can feel a sense of pride. Gosh, I mean, I must be really smart if I have this nice stuff and they don't. I, I must deserve more honor and deference than they do because look at the stuff that I have. Or actually, pride can work in the reverse too, right? You see someone with more and you start judging them. How could they spend their money on something like that? What a waste, what a shame. And you start judging them, but that's pride too. You're both obsessed with possessions. You're still evaluating everything by possessions. You see, this pride that comes from possessions, it, it, it wrecks your relationships. If you start treating a family member like you look down on them because they don't have as much as you, you'll wreck that relationship. If you start treating a friend poorly, like you need to show me honor and deference because I have more, or you start judging a friend and you're kind of passive aggressive to them because of what they wear and what they have, your pride over possessions will ruin. It will sap the love and the life out of that relationship. This is why Jesus says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. No, an abundance of possessions, what does that equal? It equals idolatry, it equals exhaustion, it equals shallowness, it equals distraction, it equals anxiety, it equals envy, it equals pride, it equals hurt relationships. That is not life. And Jesus says, I want to give you life. Which wisdom do you wanna trust in your life? The wisdom of the world that's probably causing the largest anxiety crisis in human history. It's no shocker that the most materialistic, wealthy culture in human history is the most anxious culture in human history. Those are not two different things. Or will you trust the wisdom of Jesus? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. If you wanna trust Jesus, you're going to have to change your life. And I think he's calling all of us to change our lives. And, and the things I think he's calling us to do, they aren't enormous things, but they are important things. And there's lots of different practices that you can live in your life that will help you resist materialism. But I wanna talk to you about two that come from the Bible and, and ancient church tradition. And the first one is radical generosity. You know, one reason why the Bible calls us to give away 10% of our wealth is because for most people, not for everyone, but for most people, giving away 10% of your wealth cuts into your lifestyle. Giving 10% of your wealth hurts. It means that you had to say no to something that you wanted so that you could say yes to God. It means you had to say no to something that maybe you thought you need so that you could say, God, I trust you to provide this thing instead. Radical generosity is one of the best ways to resist the promise of stuff in our life by saying no to that stuff and yes to him. One of the best examples of this comes from our own church. Uh, years ago, we used to meet in Rockbridge High School, and as the church grew and just things were changing, we, we had to move out from the high school, but there was nowhere else for us to go, and so we needed to build this building, but we didn't have resources at the time, and so we did a big funding campaign, and there was one family in particular that gave a very large check to help build this building, and everybody was a little bit surprised that they, they had that much, and so the pastors reached out and said, hey, where, where did this come from? And they explained that they had been saving for a long time for something that they really, really wanted. And they had taken all of that money and they had given it away. And when they were asked why they did it, they said, I'm just so much more excited to see what God could do with this gift 
than to have something to wax in my front yard. Which one do you want? Do you want dust or do you want the riches of God's mercy and love and presence? This is why we practice radical generosity. But there's a second practice that Christians have done throughout the centuries, and this is called simplicity. And in, in, in secular speak now, it's called uh, minimalism. You can look it up online, you'll find out. But it actually comes out of Christianity. And simplicity is essentially the idea that we should actively try to say no. We should actively try to say enough. We should actively try to curtail our purchases. Find an area where we're buying a lot and consuming a lot and intentionally reduce it. Now, I got this idea from John Mark Comer in his book, The, the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he he applied it to clothes. And I've taken his ideas and I've done it for myself. I get made fun of a lot because I wear all black. Um, and it's not because I think it's cool. Uh, I don't. It's for a very simple reason. It's because black always matches black. And if I, if, I, if I only have one color of clothing, I don't need a lot of pairs of shirts. I don't need a lot of pairs of pants because it all matches with each other. And the intentional choice I was doing here was that the reality was I was spending a ton of time online shopping. <laughs> I was constantly looking at new clothes. I was spending hundreds of dollars a year buying clothes. In other words, I was an average American. And I finally just realized that God was calling me to take a vow of simplicity in my heart and say enough. And so now, you know, I might buy two to three pairs of shirts in a year or a few pairs of pants. I only buy things when they wear out. I've got lots of shirts that are years old and my wife tells me I need to get rid of, but I'm not ready yet. And <laughs> the thing is, this is the beauty of it. And this is just me. I have stopped caring about clothing. I, I, I don't think about clothes. I don't think about other people's clothes. I hardly notice it. And instead of having my attention on the stuff that I have and the stuff that other people have, I found that my attention has slowly been drawn towards Jesus and towards the riches of his mercy and towards his goodness and beauty that can be found in every person, whether they're wearing Walmart or Gucci or whatever it is. He is there, his image is there, and I'm able to see him more clearly because I just don't care about that stuff. Where are you tempted to consume where are you tempted to want to buy more? Where are you seeking happiness? Maybe it's not clothes. Maybe it's the new car purchase every year. Maybe it's the new house that I want. I don't know what it is. What would it look like for you to take a vow of simplicity and say, in this one area of my life, I'm just going to fight to say enough. I don't need more. I don't need to buy more. I'm gonna limit what I spend. I'm saying enough so that, so that I can say no to those things, so that I can say yes to him. I, I, I wanna be crystal clear about one thing. We don't practice generosity or simplicity to earn Jesus's favor. He has already done that for us. He died on a cross to forgive us of our sins and to welcome us into his presence, into the loving embrace of his father. He already loves you. The father already loves you. You have that in Jesus because of what he's done. So we don't do these things to earn God's favor. It has nothing to do with it. The reason why we practice radical generosity, why we practice simplicity, why we resist materialism is so that we can enjoy the riches of his love more richly. That's why. Do you want to enjoy the riches of his love more richly? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Say no to stuff so you can say yes to him. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that I am the chief of sinners. Materialism has dug such a deep hole in my heart. It has webbed itself into my mind, my motivations, in ways that I can't even see, that I don't want to admit, that I don't want to resist. And yet, you have given us true wisdom. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so I confess before you my sins, and I pray to you. And I pray we would all pray to you right now. Give me neither poverty nor many possessions, but only my daily bread. Jesus, help us to believe and live like life is not found in an abundance 
of possessions. By your grace, empower us, strengthen us, and give us a passion to know you, love you, and enjoy your riches more. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Now you can stand to receive God's blessing. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you so that you might enjoy the riches of his mercy, the riches of his love, the riches of his goodness more than all the things that will one day turn to dust. Go in peace. Thanks for worshiping with us today.